Welcome to Governmental Astrology. I'm Linda Rowe. Today is April 23rd, 2020, and I'm doing my second episode about the Constitution today. I first sort of became interested with the Constitution um, when I was looking at at, uh, gay marriage struggles. I was actually interested before, but this is a, a good... It's when I really started getting interested. So my first um, encounter with the Constitution has come through the First Amendment because um, I was following the gay marriage struggle, and I felt strongly that all of the struggles that the LGBTQ community has faced over the years have been due to a denial of First Amendment rights. And even though I've always felt this way, I didn't realize that others didn't feel this way until the Human Rights Campaign, which is a 501c3, uh, before they took on two gay marriage court cases that went before the Supreme Court. One of the cases was Obergefell v. Hodges, and that was a right-to-marry lawsuit and the other one was DeBoer v. Snyder. And in that court case, it was a right to adopt children. The Human Rights Campaign was using the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment to argue for the right to marry in one of the court cases, and it was using the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in the other case. And I felt very strongly that unless they took on the fight as a First Amendment um, reason that the LGTB community was always going to have to fight for every little thing. And then the Masterpiece Bakery here in Colorado said that they weren't going to make a cake for two gay guys who were getting married. And the gay guys follow, filed suit and the case ultimately went before the Supreme Court And I had mixed feelings about that one. Uh, Over the years, I've run into quite a few Christians who won't work with me because I'm gay. One was a structural engineer that I had called when we got a letter from the insurance company saying that they were no longer going to carry us because of a large crack in the side of our house. And the building engineer came over and he and I spent quite a lot of time talking um, he was a Vietnam vet, and we, we got along very well. But then as things progressed, he found out that I was in a same-sex relationship, and he called and he told me that he could no longer work with us, and he referred us to a different structural engineer. And I called that guy, and We had a fabulous experience with the new guy. He was way better than the original guy that I had called. And then the same thing happened years later when I decided to get married to a different woman. In the Jewish religion, at least in Reform Judaism, same-sex marriages have not been a problem for a long time. And so, even though this was before any of the Supreme Court cases, We had a big marriage celebration where we invited a bunch of people and had a blast. And before the the ceremony, when we were looking to line up music for the party, 
My partner had called this one guy who was a musician at our synagogue, and he told her that he couldn't work with us, and he referred us to a different musician. And so we called him, and we had the same experience. We loved this band. It was perfect. And we even found out that my partner's best friend was related to the singer of the band, and they had no idea that each other even existed. And so my initial feelings were, why would you go to someone who doesn't like you for such an important thing? Why would you go to a bakery that um, doesn't like gay people? And yet there's another part of me that knows that African-Americans have been shut out of many businesses and they wouldn't have had a referral to somebody else. When somebody told the African-Americans that they weren't going to work with them, that person was just shutting them out of public life. I also feel that access to abortion and birth control is a First Amendment right. But my strong feelings on this subject sort of came out of nowhere. And when I pursued the subject, I was always told I was wrong. Whenever I asked friends of mine who were lawyers or discussed it with other people, they always said, no, that's not how you look at the Constitution. And that's largely always been my experience with the Constitution. Somebody more knowledgeable than me or more powerful than me is looking at the Constitution from a different direction than I am. And I have always heard, that's not how it works. This is how it works. And so the Constitution remains this high document that is inaccessible, except for a few people who we allow to interpret the Constitu Constitution. But for me, that just isn't how it needs to be. I'd like to see groups of people sitting around discussing issues from every angle. Um, sort of like putting the issue and the Constitution in the axle of the wheel, and then everyone sits around on the rim of the wheel, and you can transform the issue by turning it around and around. For me, the Constitution should never be viewed just from one direction. We all know that the outcome of many Supreme Court decisions is highly dependent on the composition of the court. Whenever you have single-issue interpretations, they're based on belief. So today, I want to look at the Constitution, and I'd like to understand why am I always looking at it from a different direction than most people? And I'd like to say that, for the record, um, we should all be better at interpreting the Constitution for ourselves. It's a powerful document. And letting others who have more authority than we do be the only ones who get to interpret the document. That's dangerous in my book. Having a Supreme Court is a good thing, but when the verdict is read, we should know if we agree and why or why not. The Constitution is our document. It is the evidence that we have a contract between us and the government and between we, the citizens. And I'd like to start by looking at some of the background that went into making the con Constitution. How did we get here today? One of the oldest documents that went into making up the Constitution 
um, of England is the Magna Carta. And since most of the people who were living in the colonies um, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, they were of English heritage. And the Magna Carta would have been something that they were looking at before beginning to frame our own constitution. And I'm going to put a link up to a translation of the Magna Carta in English. Uh, the original document was written in Latin, which meant it was not a document of the people. It was signed in 1215, and it was a list of demands brought to the King John by 25 barons. And it was a pretty long list, actually, and it had some important ramifications. Number one, it limited the power of the king and made him subject to law. Number two, it limited the taxes that went to the king, instead making them go to the barons. The, the barons got the profits of the taxes and not the king. Number three, it gave the barons an unlimited right to religious liberty. And I would say religious liberty and religious freedom are two separate ideas. At least in American English, the word unlimited, uh, well, in American English, liberty is different from freedom. And the word unlimited, which appears in the Magna Carta, um, at least in the translated version that I'm reading, uh, it's associated with religious freedom, unlimited religious freedom. You know from the last episode that anytime I see the word unlimited associated with a power, a red flag goes up for me. And I would say that the barons were claiming some of the king's power as their own. Um, and even though the Magna Carta didn't stand, the ideas have passed down through the centuries. And so there are certainly is some of the Magna Carta in our Constitution today. Um, oh, there's another thing. The, the beginnings of the modern banking system can be found in the Magna Carta. I'll, I'll cover that later. Uh, and the Magna Carta also deals with succession of property rights. So two more things. Um, there was another big thing that was... Uh, going into the framing of the Constitution. And that is uh, that the framers lived during the, the Age of Enlightenment. And the Age of Enlightenment, Enlightenment was a big sort of a, a revolution in thinking. Uh, reasoning or logic was very important during the Age of Enlightenment. There was an idea that the world is dualistic, and there is in religious life as well, but in religious life, the dualism is good and bad. And in the Age of Enlightenment, the dualism is rather um, a separation of mind and matter. The Enlightenment thinkers began thinking about God in a slightly different way during this time. God was seen as infinite, but not necessarily concerned with the dealings of men. Um, the Enlightenment thinkers were concerned with this thing that they called natural rights. But nobody during the Enlightenment was looking at nature, like out 
with the earth and seeing how the processes go. And the Age of Enlightenment thinkers, they only looked at the nature of men. And so whenever they talk about nature, that's how you need to look at it. Just the nature of men, which they would see as the nature of human beings, but they weren't really looking at women either. Um, for the Enlightenment thinker, humans are vastly superior to all other forms of creation. And even now, uh, we humans, we really don't see ourselves as a part of what's going on in nature. We always view ourselves as being outside of nature. When the Enlightenment thinker spoke of the nature of men, it was because they were thinking about the rights that all men held in common. And this was a pretty radical thought, actually. Science, the scientific method, and thinking rationally were all viewed. And there was also a development of contract theory that came into being during the Enlightenment period. And basically, the Age of Enlightenment is a secular movement. And Enlightenment thinkers saw human beings as having the ability to behave rationally with one another. And being good as a human being was not a result of being under God's control. Social contracts for the Enlightenment thinker, they were secular law. And there was one secular, or there was one Enlightenment thinker in particular that our framers seemed to like, and that was John Locke. Uh, John Locke was an English Puritan, and he had a lot of really interesting ideas, uh, solid theories in his philosophy, and then he had uh, some issues as well. Uh, I'm going to put up a link to his uh, it, it's a web page that does a really nice job of, ex of presenting John Locke's philosophy. Basically, he didn't like tyrannical governments, and he, in fact, favored governments with a relatively small amount of political power. Uh, equality before the law was very important to Locke. And then, oddly, he believed that humans were the property of God, so if you combine everything together that I've said, you can begin to see how people interact with the Constitution sometimes as a social contract and a social contract dealing with property law, uh, especially when you realize that the English common law came from an agricultural system and a system where the king owned most of the land. And so you know, the Magna Carta barons took the king's power on as their own. Uh, that, for me, is a red flag because it's the same pattern. And so the, the patriarchy doesn't change. When you take the king's power, really all you're doing is making yourself the king. But um, the uh, we can... When I look at the way that people interact with the Constitution, and this isn't really mandated or anything, but I can see that some people deal with it as a social contract uh, dealing with property law. I don't see property law, however, as being one of our more equitable areas of law. 
Um, it seems a fairly big task to try to get equality from property law. Going the property route may have been one of the only ways that we could have actually ever gotten to a society that's equitable. Um, and yet, it, it certainly is difficult. And I can under, it, you can see the Herculean task that was before the framers. But there's some issues that we're left with today. Um, I'm bothered by the presence of slavery in, at the same time that there's a document that deals with property rights. I'm bothered by the fact that the early colonists took over the land that had been previously occupied by other people. And I don't see either of these issues being completely dealt with in our constitution. Um, there's quite a lot of inequality in all of this. And yet, before Trump came into office, most people that I talked to seem to believe that the Constitution was a sort of one-and-done kind of document. I listened to people talking in the year before Trump was elected by the Electoral College, and I could hear people talking about our democracy and our freedom as if it was something we had already achieved and as if it was something that Trump was going to take away from us. And this is not how I view the Constitution or our society. I view the Constitution as a very powerful document, a document that is so powerful that we had and have no idea what we're dealing with. I see people not really looking at the Constitution. It hangs on their wall, and that's about it. Even lawyers. I don't see a lot of understanding with them either. When I see understanding in terms of the Constitution, I have to look at Martin Luther King Jr. I look at Rosa Parks. I see it from the people who struggled to protect the land and the water from the oil pipeline, the struggle at Standing Rock. These are the people who understand the Constitution. I see other people, um, and really they should take the Constitution that's hanging on their wall to the Antiques Roadshow, um, you know, where you show the expert the document that you found up in your attic and you wonder if it's valuable or not, and the expert will tell you whether or not you have a real treasure on your hands. Most people simply have no idea what the Constitution is saying. And that's probably because we've never really given a lot of thought as to what freedom is. And once we have an idea of what freedom is, we need to know if the Constitution is pointing us in that direction or not. And I can tell you, it is pointing us in the direction of freedom. And the experts at the Road Antique Roadshow would definitely tell us that the Constitution is a valuable document. 
And so that is the question, uh, whether or not the Constitution is pointing us in the direction of freedom. And it's really the same question as with astrology, actually. Um, I'm not saying that the astrological wheel charges a contract or that it, it comes anywhere near the Constitution. What I'm saying is that there's a directionality to the message. The astrological wheel chart is not just telling you how to live a good life. It's not just telling you how to get what you want out of life. It's actually pointing you in a direction. There is an agenda to the astrological wheel chart. And you can only find out the agenda by being receptive to the message. And this is the same thing with the Constitution. Yes, the agenda for the Constitution is to point us towards freedom. But it's not a one-and-done proposition. We had not achieved living in freedom when Trump took office. And in fact, we had been moving in the opposite direction from freedom for some time, at least since about 1969 and possibly 1968. If, if we were not moving in the direction of freedom, what direction were we moving in? In America, the fight has always been between the middle class and the elite or the working class and the elite. If you're Democrat, you say middle class values are what needs to be protected. And if you have a social uh, leaning, you'll say working class. But then we bog get bogged down in what is a socialist ideal because Americans are terrified of socialists unless your president is trying to work with them for some reason. Americans have very little understanding of which direction to take in order to move towards freedom. And single-issue voting has been a problem in the U.S. for a while. And it probably started with Roe v. Wade back in 1973. As I remember it, Roe v. Wade was hugely controversial. And today we usually hear about Supreme Court cases, but Roe v. Wade made a huge impact. Um, in, in the suit that was brought before the Supreme Court, <clears throat> there were actually two other suits that were filed in that suit. Um, when, when Jane... Roe was asking for the right to have an abortion. There was a suit by the physician whom Jane Roe had approached, and he was not thrilled about being asked to perform an abortion. And so he filed a suit asking for clarification on the law since he had already been arrested once for performing abortions. And then there was, incredibly, a childless couple who sued and the childless couple said, basically, that couples like them were waiting for children while women like Jane Roe were busy trying to kill theirs. I'm completely stating that in my own language, but it's sort of the truth. Uh, the court threw out the childless couple's case. Nevertheless, it's important to note that ab abortion is a Plutonian issue, and I don't really know how to explain it right now, that abortion is a Plutonian issue, except that it is. And when you look at Roe v. Wade, 
you can see how difficult it was to argue that case and how difficult it was to decide that case. They ended up um, considering the Fifth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, the Twelfth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, and the Twenty-Second Amendment, all of that, just to decide Roe v. Wade. In the case, the uh, Supreme Court uh, people, the, the, the justices, they defined the definition of liberty, uh, which was given in a previous case, but they didn't necessarily agree with the definition of liberty. Um, the, the case Roe v. Wade was argued under privacy laws, uh, and there was one judge who dissented because he did not believe it was a case of privacy. In essence, Roe v. Wade is the nuclear issue of the Constitution. It's no wonder then that groups have been fighting it and nicking away at it for years. I would say Roe v. Wade is the central issue to the Constitution. It contains everything within it that humanity is going to have to confront, especially within the United States. Or first within the United States, I guess. Depending on how Roe v. Wade is ultimately decided, and it's going to be soon, I think, uh, that we're going to decide it within the next, I don't know how many years, but certainly, um, I don't know, five, six within, I don't know, I have no idea, but it's going to be soon. Um, when we ultimately deal with Roe v. Wade, the United States will either be on the road to freedom or we'll be headed back towards authoritarianism. You know, right now we're in the middle of a Pluto transit, and it's no coincidence that abortion issues have been popping up all over the place since January 12, 2020. It's also no coincidence that Chernobyl is burning. Um, nuclear issues are on the docket for Pluto transits. And so that's why I'm saying we're going to see more of Roe v. Wade very soon. You know, there are two paths to freedom, and I just mentioned them. Um, these paths before us, in the United States particularly. One path leads to religious freedom, and the other path leads to natural earthly freedom. Uh, one path leads to imprisonment, and the other to adulthood. But until we realize the difference between these two freedoms, we are doomed to continue using the Constitution for our own private agendas. You know, it's the Constitution that has an agenda. It's us that needs to be receptive to that message. If you come to the Constitution with your own agenda, it's not being receptive. Okay, so let's look a little bit more at these two separate types of paths, both to freedom. When you understand that at the issue is both sides are trying to find freedom, you begin to look at this a little differently. Um, neither side is evil. They're both searching for freedom. They just understand it differently. And I think we can get to the way that both sides are looking for freedom, the religious freedom people and everyone else. 
um, by looking at equality and property law. The Constitution's view of equality is found only in two places. The first is in the Declaration of Independence, and the second is in the 14th Amendment. And so I want to begin with the Declaration of Independence, and I want to actually read for you the, the first couple of sentences. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government, of the governed, sorry. When I look at these first two sentences, I see conflict. God, or the divine, is mentioned twice. And if you have no concept of the divine, you or you have a different concept of the divine, it's hard to find your place in this constitution. Likewise, if you have a particular understanding of the divine, you will always have trouble finding yourself in the constitution. Because it's if, if your definition of the divine is never in the constitution, how will you find yourself? Um, and then... They're talking about the laws of nature. And as I said, they're only talking about the laws of nature of man. If our understanding of the laws of nature change, then our understanding of the Constitution is also going to change. And how do we document that change in understanding? How do we document the lens that we are using to view the Constitution? Now, Locke, the philosopher that the framers liked so much, he said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And at the last minute, the framers changed the property and said happiness. Whew, this, is, this is a tiny little change and a big change, and it makes a huge difference in the Constitution. If the framers had not replaced property and left it, as Locke said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, then the phrase in this first part of Declaration of Independence would have basically been that they were claiming the rights of the king for themselves. Um, it's, it would have been no hope of overturning any sort of patriarchal patterns because they would have been claiming the same exact patterns as the patriarchy. Um, but at the last minute, they said pursuit of, of happiness. And so you can sort of look at these three rights uh, a little differently. We get to pursue, well, we get to have life, 
We get to decide who, how we're going to live. Liberty, and this is, liberty is the right to make your own decisions. Um, so we get to live, we get to make our own decisions, and then uh, pursuit of happiness. And, you know, happiness is the ability to experience life, to be yourself. Happiness is an individual right. Um, each individual that makes up the, the bigger group gets to pursue happiness for themselves. And this is what this clause is saying. It's for these rights that the government is being formed, actually. The government is going to protect these rights, supposedly. The government, by saying, by writing these three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they are actually saying that the government is being formed to protect human rights. That's the reason for the federal government, to protect human rights. So can you see the two paths in front of us? One path leading to religious freedom and the other path leading to natural earthly freedom. And it doesn't have to be this way. Religious freedom could be on the same path as natural earthly freedom, but not if you argue religious freedom from the point of view of one religion, which is what we've had recently. We've had people going before the Supreme Court arguing religious freedom and saying it's only for them. They, they weren't arguing for everyone. Um, is abortion something that all religions prohibit? No, it absolutely is not. Is birth control something that all religions prohibit? No, definitely not. So when you argue freedom of religion, but you only do it from one viewpoint, you're bringing the king with you. And the king can't come on this journey. At least he can't come as long as he's the king. The king has to give up his control, his power, his reign. And we saw that at the beginning when Prince Harry abdicated. He wasn't the king, but he was pretty close to the king. And he was giving up his reign to pursue the path of freedom. This is the, the, the pattern that we're looking for as we move forward. And why can't the king come along on this journey towards earthly freedom? Because where we're going, they don't know about a king. There is no concept of being king where we're going. Think about that for a minute. Where we're going, there isn't even a concept of having a king. It just doesn't exist. And I can explain it another way. In our world today, we like unlimited energy. Only when we're in control of it, though. When the unlimited energy um, is flowing into our pockets, and we're very good at making unlimited energy flow into our pockets, um, even those of us who are at the bottom of the heap and don't have much unlimited energy flowing towards us, we know how to do it because we've grown up in this system and it's a part of us. 
Um, but where we're going, it's not un unlimited energy. It's unlimited space. We don't know the rules. We don't yet belong. And we don't understand the concept of standing on our own two feet. And so we tend to look for people to rescue us, for people to blame. And none of that exists where we're going. And so when unlimited energy meets unlimited space, the unlimited energy just takes everything over. It just bowls everything down, takes over everything in its path. And that's why we cannot bring this unlimited energy with us into freedom, which is unlimited space. So let me show you what I mean by taking a look at property rights in the Constitution. As I mentioned briefly, John Locke, the Enlightenment philosopher who was esteemed by the framers, he had some interesting ideas about property. John Locke said that human beings are the property of God. Um, so John Locke liked looking at what he considered to be the natural world, but his natural world was a world only of human beings. And so um, this natural world is, of course, completely all about human beings. Um, and he saw human beings as workers, and not just any type of worker, a farmer, a rancher, or an agriculturalist. For Locke, the relationship between man and the cultivated land, or animal, that was what was paramount. For Locke, land ownership came about through working the land. You know, and you realize that the um, first law of thermodynamics, the one that sets up work as a foundational energy on the earth and that it also came about during this enlightenment period. You begin to understand why I don't like the first law of thermodynamics, why I think we should reevaluate that. Um, we must get through this idea that human beings are made for work. Uh, it just simply... Uh, it's it's wrong. It's absolutely 100% wrong. It's, I can't even, it's just wrong. So, um, so you can see Locke's ideas, even if they weren't yet formed, in the patterning of acquisition of the earlier colonies. So I'm, I'm saying that um, when they first came, when they were first established, the colonies, they landed in this area, they uh, took over the land that was being uh, inhabited by other peoples and they started working the land. And this patterning is what Locke is talking about, even though he's talking about it after the fact. He's saying that he likes it. You can understand why the colonists liked Locke's ideas because he's saying, well, look what happened in the colonies. It's exactly what needs to occur. Um, but how do we deal with that 200 and however many years we are later, 250, um, how do we get this idea of ownership and property out 
of our understanding of the Constitution. Um, it's, it's essential that we do this. And the ideas of property ownership, they run throughout the Constitution, sometimes with an overt reference, and sometimes the reference is completely silent. I get the distinct feeling that the Christians who are arguing that they don't believe in something and so they shouldn't be forced to do that something, uh, what they are saying is that Christian beliefs belong in the public domain. They're viewing the United States kind of like a condominium complex. And when the Christians are saying that their beliefs belong in the public domain, they're saying that their beliefs belong in the hallways and the elevators and the swimming pools and the common yard outside. The Christians are saying, if you want to use birth control or be gay, fine. Just do it in your own condo and not in our hallways. There is circumstantial evidence that the Constitution is viewed, at least in part, as a social contract of property rights. In real estate, rights can be bundled. And the bundled rights in real estate, ten, uh, there's two different groups of them. One is possession, disposition, control, exclusion, and enjoyment. And you can see this almost exactly when in the Declaration of Independence. In those first couple of sentences that I read, uh, the rights are presented as inalienable. I don't know why I have such a hard time saying that. The inalienable rights are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, which is possession, disposition, control, exclusion, and enjoyment. It sounds pretty much the same to me, and I'm troubled by this. For one, it's absolutely possible to strip away rights in real estate. When you buy a piece of land, you're supposed to own what's above it, what you're standing on, and what's below it. You're supposed to have available access. You're supposed to have access to available water. And yet, everyone in the West knows that the government is the one that controls the water rights. That access was um, stripped. The right was stripped years ago. Mineral rights have also been stripped over much of what is sold today as... Um, residential real estate. So there's another way to look at this. Uh, rights to what's above, to what's below, to what's on the surface, and water. Um, well, as they've stripped it away, the definition of real estate has been whittled down. And I would say that as the definition of real estate has been whittled down into nothing. We've also seen that the Constitution has whittled down the definition of personhood. And that has changed over time. There's, a, there's one more thing. The rights can be stolen by a squatter. So the government can steal your rights, but so can another citizen. If you don't surveil your property constantly and somebody comes in and they sit on it, the person that's sitting on your property, they actually can take ownership and there's nothing you can do about it. And I see this happening in the battle for constitutional rights. So the religious rights people come in, they claim a right for themselves, and then they watch. Does anybody stand up and refute their claim? 
And as far as I can see, usually not. And so the Christians just move in and claim the right as their own. In essence, what they've been able to do is to put belief into the common areas of personhood as well. Um, if, if you go against... Um, when they come in and they state one of their um, big statements about what they believe, we need to stand up and say no, that that's not the way it is. If we don't, then they see it as their complete right to occupy that space. If a corporation can be considered a person, and yet a person who is owned is only three-fifths of a person, uh, and we've never actually dealt with either of those two issues, and then we have a CEO uh, or a businessman in real estate, a land acquisition guy coming in, uh, you begin to see that, oof, we are in a little bit bigger problem than maybe we thought we were because we've never dealt with this in our Constitution. And so this is, I guess, the second uh, nuclear issue of the Constitution that we are dealing with in this Plutonian time. So um, abortion rights and personhood rights. Those are both We're trying to get personhood rights out of being owned, out of being, um, of having the rights stripped away from personhood. Uh, it's it's going to point us in the direction of this free land that we're going to, this unlimited space. And so that's about all of the information I've got for today. Um, I think as your homework for today, um, if you can watch the decisions that come from the Supreme Court and you can just spend some time deciding how you would or would not agree with their decision. Uh, and then also watch it about how people around you are talking about freedom. So anytime anybody says freedom or liberty, listen to what they're saying. And I would actually include even in that um, the, the references to being free is in terms of gi a giveaway. Um, we have a free, I don't know, buy one, get one free. Um, watch, how is it that we talk about freedom? Uh, and all you're doing is watching. You're not actually, you don't have to argue or anything like that. You just watch. So those are your two pieces of, of homework. Um, and I have a little bit more on the Constitution that I'd like to share. Uh, but I may go ahead with another subject first. I'd like to talk about the banking system and the postal service. And I want to do that astrologically. Um, and so I'll be back. If you need to contact me, my phone number, if someone is contacting me right now, oops. Um, my phone number is 720-608-0309.
My email address is governmentalastrology at gmail.com. As always, I'm glad you're here.